If we want to intelligently manage the relationship of the 27 amongst each other, if we want to intelligently integrate the Western Balkans into a European structure, and for theory, the Ukraine, Moldova, possibly Georgia, who knows, then one size fits all simply will not work. And in the past, one has sort of let others in without changing how we work. And if we do that the next time around, it'll be a disaster for the future of Europe. Welcome back to In The Room, a series of conversations with people who witnessed and shaped key moments in recent European history. Today's conversation is with an insider's insider, Thomas Wieser, a man described by Yanis Varoufakis no less as, quote, part of every policy and every coup that resulted in Greece's immolation and Europe's ignominy, unquote. Well, that's one way of putting it. Put another way, Thomas Visa was the president of the Eurogroup Working Group, so it was quite literally his job to be part of every policy and in every room at every stage of the long Euro crisis. To know why, you need to know what the Eurogroup and its working group are, and I'll keep this mercifully brief. The Eurogroup is the Committee of Finance Ministers of Countries Using the Euro. To support its agenda, the Eurogroup has a working group, the EWG, which is made up of each minister's top official and serviced by European Commission staff. Originally set up as an informal gathering, the Eurogroup steadily assumed powers and responsibilities and eventually needed a full-time president. Once the crisis hit, ministers realised this wasn't enough. The EWG president needed to do the job full-time as well and become the Eurozone's equivalent of a national treasury director, state secretary and finance sherpa. Thomas Visa, who had been running the EWG part-time since 2009, took on the full-time job from 2012 and held it until early 2018, getting out just before the next step in the crisis, the election of the Salvini Di Maio government in Italy. He served under three Eurogroup presidents, Jean-Claude Juncker, Jeroen Dijsselbloem and Mario Centeno. He was a central figure in the bailout negotiations for Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain and Cyprus. He took a key role in the design and construction of the Euro's firewalls and the development of the banking union. And for the Obama Treasury, he was the answer to Henry Kissinger's famous question, who do I call if I want to call Europe? So when we met at his home in Vienna, we had plenty to talk about. And frankly, I could have talked for another hour at least. As you'll hear early on in the conversation, his thinking extends well beyond the economic sphere and into the big issues of the moment, like the Eastern extension of the Union and questions of future governance. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I bring you Thomas Visa. Well, can we begin, so that people aren't intimidated by how good your English is, by explaining why it's so good? I was born in the United States, in Maryland, to an Austrian father and a British or English mother who had actually met in Sweden. So their first common language was either Swedish or English, which is how I picked up a little bit of Swedish, listening to them when they didn't want me to understand what they were talking about. And I spent my early years partially in the United States, partially in Austria, alternating between the one and the other. And the most joyful period at that time was kindergarten on Cape Cod. And I then 
spent a couple of very interesting months working as a waiter in Pennsylvania after high school and a Fulbright scholarship at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I, to the huge disgust of my English mother, came back with what she described as an American accent, but which everybody else said was more mid-Atlantic. So my accent varies according to the time of day and whom I'm talking to, but that is more or less where I picked up my English, and we talked partially German and partially English at home, and my exposure to literature was also more or less 50-50, and which stood me in good stead when I started my professional career, or the first couple of years of my professional career, when my wife and I moved to Geneva and I worked in EFTA, which nobody knows about, which is the European Free Trade Association, which was the club of the small neutral countries, which for one reason or the other could not, were not allowed to, or did not want to join what was then the European Economic Community. So that's how I started my international career. And then in 1989, when a couple of these countries applied for membership in the European Union, the Austrian finance minister started to look for somebody who was capable of two things. One, he or she should be able to speak English, and he or she should be able to find Brussels on the map. And I was highly qualified in both. So that is how I came back to Austria in 1989 at the age of, hugely advanced age of 35. Nice. So you can figure out how old I am today. Yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned that uh, English was a requirement. I mean, in those earlier days in Brussels, it was still pretty French. Should we read anything into that, the fact that they wanted somebody who spoke better English? One possible explanation is that the people in Vienna hadn't realized that French was a prerequisite in Brussels at the time. I also spoke French, but my English definitely wasn't is significantly better than my French. But before Austria actually applied, you actually did some work on the European economic area, I believe. How involved in that negotiation were you? Well, actually quite involved. And I still remember the day when the personal envoy of Jacques Delors appeared in Geneva and started explaining to us what the thinking was of how to keep the small neutral countries outside of the European Union, but highly integrated into the internal market. That was something which, from the point of view of pure economics, sounded pretty good. And from a political or constitutional point of view, didn't sound so good. So I understand those people who were dead set against the European economic area. For us, who later joined the European Union, it was very, very good because it gave us advanced training and a much more gradualistic integration into the internal market, both in terms of the economics and in terms of the legislative, bureaucratic, political issues. And I was at the time in Geneva, even though I saw myself as more of a macroeconomist, I was in charge of state aid issues. And I became, after I left the EFTA secretariat, moved to Vienna, I became the EFTA chairperson and spokesperson for state aid issues in the negotiations on the European economic area, which was incredibly interesting and possibly moved me from being a pure macro person into more of a bureaucrat. 
I mean, the EEA now feels like, you know, given what's happened in Ukraine, there's this discussion now around a European political community and multi-speed Europe. Do you feel the EEA provides some kind of model for multi-speed? I think those of us who did not join the European Union or economic community or whatever in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s are much more attuned to the political difficulties that we in Europe are facing, especially what the alternatives and possibilities are. And for the last six, seven years, I've been thinking deeply about alternative models of integration because we have seen that a European Union of 28 or of 27 finds it increasingly difficult to come to agreement or consensus on difficult issues. One of the unfortunate results was Brexit, but other complexities remain, especially with the present situation in Poland and even more so in Hungary. But if you look at the internal market proper, uh, if you look at the setup of the European Union, you may start believing that all the easy issues have been resolved. Many of the issues that are important for the internal market were decided on, voted on since the late 80s by majority, qualified majority voting, which you might think is the solution to many things. But internal market issues, which are decided by QMV, don't really excite the population at large. Nobody really cares if you were outvoted on the size of the tractor seat or the curvature of a cucumber or stuff like that, let alone really important issues like Basel II, Basel III, Basel IV. It makes the more informed papers, and the vast majority of the population could not care less. So QMB is fine for these things, but less and less do we have issues like that which are important for European integration. Therefore, for legal or political reasons, we need to find alternative methods of coming to satisfactory solutions. Those who want to integrate more deeply should not be held back by those where you actually wonder why they ever joined the European Union. Think of Hungary, for example. It must be cash. So the European economic area is one method of approaching these issues, but the important issues in Europe go far beyond the internal market. We are talking about external trade. We are talking about migration, energy, security, foreign policy, or if you so want, how should Europe be constituted in the coming years and decades so that it continues to play an important role globally? Possibly, I guess less dependent on the United States in security issues, faced with an eastern border of Europe, which may be the eastern border of Ukraine, wherever that may be in the coming years, faced with the complexities of the relationship between China and the US, changes in supply chain structures. So all of these things go far, far beyond the internal market proper. And that's why I believe, ideally, we should have a differentiated integration model of integration in Europe, where those, for example, who want to move together 
on a common foreign and security policy can do so without being held back by those who do not want it. Where those who want to have a common migration system can do so without being held back by others. But if you have a common system of migration, you need a common policy on visa, which would at present exclude Cyprus and Malta and some others. And you need a host of other policy areas which need to be not aligned, but which need to be harmonized. So these things are more difficult than they appear if you're just putting a pen to paper. But that is why a long answer to a short and pertinent question, that is why I think if we want to intelligently manage the relationship of the 27 amongst each other, if we want to intelligently integrate the Western Balkans into a European structure, and for theory, the Ukraine, Moldova, possibly Georgia, who knows, then one size fits all simply will not work. And in the past, one has sort of let others in without changing how we work. And if we do that the next time around, it'll be a disaster for the future of Europe. Mm. Do you think there's a possibility there that if a structure is built that can bring in even temporarily into an outer circle, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, that could also be something that could reintegrate to some extent Switzerland and the UK? Definitely. At present, uh, the economic and political relationships are unfortunately severely hampered. And I see absolutely no problem in having some kind of relationship which differs significantly from the status ante, i.e. full membership, or what in the case of Switzerland was an unintelligible series of bilateral deals. So if one is looking for only free trade in goods and services, I don't think that this will be adequate. It needs to be balanced with other issues, and it needs to be balanced and managed with a separate set of an institutional design that gives powers of co-decision without blocking the one or the other. It's possible. It will be necessary also for the Western Balkan countries and the Ukraine, but it can be done. Right. Well, we're going to talk quite a lot about institutional design and perhaps misdesign. Let's go back to your career. From 2005, you were chosen as vice president of the Economic and Financial Committee, which is a really core committee of the European community at the time, turning into the European Union, and then developed a subset, the Euro Working Group. How much do you feel this committee developed in the subsequent two to three years as the financial crisis broke and into the collapse of Lehman Brothers? That's very interesting because the comparator is the period between 2000 and 2007-8 and everything thereafter. And the Eurogroup was set up in late 98, early 99 as a group distinct from the ECOFIN Council of Ministers. And in order to prepare the work of ministers in the Eurogroup, the Euro Working Group was set up which again was a subset of the Economic and Financial Committee. And those were the Goldilocks years. And we saw, we, the deputies, saw a huge amount of work that actually should be done 
We saw a huge amount of analytics that needed to be discussed, and we needed these discussion amongst ministers so that they realized what's different for me as a finance minister of a monetary union compared to being the finance minister up until, take your pick, 98, 99, 2001, the finance minister of a country with a separate exchange rate, stable or not. The times were so good, we prepared for hours on end the discussion of ministers. We wrote fairly intelligent and intelligible papers. We had very good introductions by the then chairpersons of the Euroworking Group. And then there was silence amongst the ministers because they didn't feel that it was really very interesting to discuss this arcane issue of real unit labor costs or how you need to go beyond fiscal coordination in order to ensure that imbalances don't arise. So that was an unfortunately quiet period, which also explains in a way why we stumbled into 2008 and a fortiori 2010 without a full array, let alone instruments, but even cognitive black holes, admittedly not only amongst ministers, but also amongst their deputies and within the institutions. And that changed, of course, with the financial crisis in 2008, even though it took Brussels quite some time to realize what the interlinkages between bank balance sheets and the real economy were. And if it took Brussels sometimes, it took other ministers, also the Austrian ones, even longer. But the real work started then in 2010 with the beginning of the real Greek fiscal and competitive, etc. drama. So work was quite limited, unfortunately. We did our best, but we couldn't excite ministers. And then there was, after 2008 onward, there was always this tension of what is done at the national level and where do the politicians agree that there should be a either cooperation or coordination or common frameworks or common rules, or, God forbid, common institutions. So if you go through that ladder of degree of how binding your cooperation is, that's more or less the process that we moved through between 2007 and 2012. And I've got to say, it still feels the same way. It still feels as though ministers do nothing discretionary. They basically wait until a crisis is right in front of them, and then they will do extraordinary things. Did you feel that things changed over that time, or is that characterization correct? I think it's still correct, because the willingness for reform over the last couple of years has been quite minimal. I noted that in your podcast with Erkili Kanan, he mentioned that by and large, the design of monetary union was okay, barring banking union where in 2012 we managed, because we were on the brink of howling disaster, we managed to put together one of the big achievements coming out of the crisis, big institutional achievements coming out of the crisis. But it's still not complete. And I don't think it will be completed absent a financial sector crisis, which isn't on the horizon for now. Mm. I want to go back to, we're definitely going to do a lot on Greece and the 2010 situation onwards, but I want to go back to something just before that, where 
I felt that you personally seemed to play quite a significant role, which was, and it's particularly apt now, was the Ukraine bailout. So between the Lehmans and the Greek crisis, and you were involved in setting up this Vienna initiative. I remember you saying at the time that you felt a non-response to this would be a betrayal of the promise of 1989. Could you expand on that thought? Yes. We, in those years, had a political class, which to the extent that they were economically literate, of course, most of them were elderly gentlemen who had grown up in the area when trade in goods was especially important and dominant. So the knee-jerk reaction to problems in the United States was, we're doing fine. It'll be another half year or year before anything shows up in our export and import figures. Well, we had news for them. Even in those early digital days, the disaster traveled within minutes or hours or days. And they were thunderstruck by how rapidly the contagion in the banking sector worked. And quite obviously, the public and the market's trust in the stability of individual national financial markets and individual financial institutions was generally shaken at the time. And Austria's banking system came under pressure, and even the macroeconomic framework came under pressure because of the large exposure to Central and Eastern European economies, which was considerably larger than the domestic business, much, much larger than the domestic business. And there was a certain sense of distrust how these Central and Eastern European economies would withstand that onslaught because, so went the thinking, capital would be rapidly repatriated and there you go, have a huge crisis. And the concerns were, of course, not completely unfounded. And that's when, together with colleagues from the EBRD, we put together a proposal that ensured macroeconomic support for the Central and Eastern European countries against the promise of the EU 15 banks that they would completely stay engaged in these countries, not withdraw capital, not severe loan relationships, etc. And in the beginning, when I repeatedly went to Brussels and discussed with high-ranking people in the commission, including the then commissioner, the reaction was, come on, the new member states or upcoming member states, GDP is a very small fraction of our overall GDP. So if something happens there, well, it's going to happen and it'll be tough for these guys possibly, but it won't shake the foundations of the EU economy, which was nonsense. And I tried to persuade them that it was total nonsense. And others from the IMF and the EBRD and the World Bank tried to persuade them that all historic experience in the second half of the 20th century showed how such effects would not only balloon, but mushroom to no avail. So we set up our working group first at a meeting here in Vienna, and the commission reluctantly sent somebody junior as an observer But fortunately, as they realized that all other international institutions were enthusiastically on board and that the concerns, our concerns about Central and Eastern European economies were well-founded, enfin, they, they joined the train and eventually moved up into one of the front carriages, and that was fine. But it also showed 
the problem of people coming from the Western part of Europe in realizing what Central and Eastern Europe, I mean, that's east of here, what the issues are, what the sensitivities are, what the structure of the economies is, and how things can move from east to west and not only from west to east. And it showed simply 50 years of, at least 50 years of not only economic separation, but of political separation and cognitive separation. I think things have largely changed, but we're not completely there yet, where we are of not only of one mind and one market, but also of one historic past. That will take quite some years. Well, I heard at the time when Xavier Muscat stood down as chairman of the EFC and the EWG, that one of the reasons you were seen as a natural success was because of this, that you were seen as somebody who could straddle East and West in a way that hadn't been done before, that you know, the previous chairman had all been, I think, from the founding states. Is that true? I don't know, because I never asked anybody why they had voted for me as the next chairman. Maybe I didn't want to hear impolite things and somebody looking at me and said, oh, but I didn't. And it was David Vigaro. Was your David Vigaro, yeah. who's a good friend, was the alternative. And I guess it did play a certain role that I had been so, I think, enthusiastically, even though I say it myself, enthusiastically engaged in helping out the CE economies. But on the other hand, coming from a country with a sort of stable macroeconomic background and a history of sometimes fiscal prudence. Yeah. Actually, could you tell us how the voting system works for the EFC chairman? Is it secret ballot or how does it work? The outgoing chairman phones around and first you call for candidates and usually there may be, let's say, two candidates or three candidates. And then the chairperson phones around, which used to be easier when they were 10, 11, 12, 15. Now the phone bill tends to get larger. You just phone around and see, is there a clear leading candidate? And if amongst the 27, let's say one candidate would get the support of 20 and the other of seven, the chairperson would then call the second candidate and say, look, seven out of 27, you're not going to make it. And the sensible thing would be just to withdraw, which is what happens. If things are less clear, then he may actually conduct a straw poll of his own, where he really says, it's not my impression that it's 20 out of 27, but it's 14 to 13. And then he or she will get up and stand up and say, look, I've done this. It's 14 to 13. And the new chairperson is X, which requires, of course, honesty, trust, etc., in the outgoing chairperson. So what usually happens is that he or she does that with the assistance of the director of the secretariat, which we have in Brussels. But the phone calls are made by the outgoing chair. Hmm. So by the time you took over, the crisis was about 18 months old. At the time, A, did you have any inkling of what would come next, the sovereign debt crisis? And B... At the time, did you think it was possible for a country within a monetary union to default? The easy answer is no, no, no. <laughs> Analytically, we had convinced ourselves, and definitely I had convinced myself, that a capital account 
problem could not arise in a monetary union because of the fungibility of capital and a what I mistakenly thought to be a much more uniform risk assessment of solvency. So I was mistaken there. Many others were mistaken there. And we learned the hard way. So the sovereign debt crisis is something which morphed, if in retrospect, fairly logically. If we look at the genesis coming from just from the banking sector and how much money had to be put into the banking sector and moved then from the banking sector to the public sector. We had, of course, repeated warnings from the ECB and indeed rating agencies, though people deny nowadays that the rating agencies saw anything coming. But if you look back at 2007, 2008, they were fairly clear about the risks inherent in the Greek fiscal situation. Footnote, it was not a fiscal crisis alone in Greece, but that's a different story. So that explains, together with the Goldilocks times after 2000, why Europe was so unprepared. It was an analytical failure to see how a severe balance of payment crisis could emerge within the European Union, within the euro area, and how to deal with a potential default was a fortiori completely unclear. But even within the Eurogroup, there was a, had been a warning voice, and that was Jean-Claude Trichet, who at nearly every meeting, when discussing, presenting the macro picture, talking about monetary policy, he nearly invariably held up graphs, and the graphs showed the divergence of real unit labor costs. And there was a totally flat curve, and that was German real unit labor costs from 2000 onwards. And he said, look at this. These are unit, real unit labor costs in Germany. And then there's a curve which is basically just as flat, and that's Austria. And there's a curve which is not quite as flat, but nearly, and that's the Netherlands. And then, ladies and gentlemen, you see these rising curves, and that's real unit labor costs in Italy and in Portugal, France as well, but dramatically in Italy and in Portugal and in Spain and in Ireland. And then there is something for which I don't have enough paper, and that's Greece. Ladies and gentlemen, Jean-Claude Trichet said, you are ruining monetary union because you don't care about this divergence of internal competitiveness within the euro area. And as finance ministers, you have to do something. You will ruin monetary union if you don't do anything. And the reaction, nothing, nothing. They didn't understand it or they didn't care. So my preference is that they didn't understand it because if they understood and didn't care, it would be much worse. Yeah. And from what time was he doing that? I can't really remember it such a long time ago, but I guess from uh, 2005 onwards, 2006 onwards. Yeah. So a working group was set up to try and preempt what was happening in Greece. How early was that set up and whose initiative was it? Internally, within the commission, within the Director General for Economic and Financial Affairs, there was a creeping realization that the fiscal picture was not good. Then they had elections in 2009, early fall 2009, I guess it was. And the real spending spree had two effects. One was the Olympics, which had long been over. 
And then there was the pre-election spending spree by the conservative government, which just threw the boat at everything. Incredible. Which, of course, never showed up in figures because we were in the midst of their spending spree. And that's something you don't see. The statistics then pop up half a year later, a year later. But it was quite clear when the new Greek finance minister entered the room of the Eurogroup in September, I think October 2009, and said, welcome, my name is George Papa Constantino, and I have to tell you, we have a massive and catastrophic fiscal problem in Greece. And they said, okay, what's that? They, he said, well, I don't know. The present figures are 5.6, but they keep on rising every day. And the deficit for 2009, if I remember correctly, was 15 point something percent of GDP. And that's when one started to set up separate smallish groups in order to study the problem. But I don't think it had really sunk in what kind of problem we would be facing. Most people didn't realize how severe the markups, the spreads for Greece would become. Many people were in denial that there ever would be a sudden stop, capital outflows, no more access to capital market of the Greek sovereign, and a fortiori, what that would mean for both sides of the balance sheets of the Greek banking system. So there was a significant cognitive delay until people started faintly realizing what was happening. And the belief was possibly until the end of the third Greek program in many quarters that what we were talking about was purely a fiscal crisis, which is nonsense. Yeah. Going back to that very beginning, the end of 2009 up till May 2010, when the EFSF was unveiled and the ECB's securities market program, certainly the impression from the outside was that a lot of people thought this thing could be dealt with relatively small intervention until May uh, 2010, when they realized they really had to throw a lot at it. Were you surprised by that approach and the obsession that, again, seemed to come from Berlin, that the IMF had to be involved at any cost, that lack of trust in the European Commission? The answer to that alone would take two hours probably to completely cover it. First, it's not as if everybody in Berlin agreed to have the IMF on board. I remember Wolfgang Schäuble telling us in a very, very small group that initially he had been totally opposed to the IMF joining any European program, but that in the end, Jens Weidmann had persuaded Angela Merkel to have the IMF on board. And so it happened. Thus, so it happened. And was the motivation a lack of trust in the commission, or was it because he was ex-IMF? What is your understanding as to what the real motivation was? Well, one also has to remember what the role of the IMF in those days was, and that the IMF had recently laid off a large part of its staff because they were underemployed. There was no crisis. And therefore, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, I think, was I never witnessed it, but I am pretty certain that he was pushing heavily in all sorts of different quarters for having the IMF on board and involved in order to ensure that the fund had a role in Europe. That was the only crisis ongoing. So have a decent crisis and the IMF not involved there, how could that happen? So voila. Another part of the answer was we didn't have a clue. Globally, the IMF staff were the only people who knew how to analyze the problems of a 
country having a severe balance of payment crisis, how to design a program, how to implement it, how to control it. Now we know. But back in 2010, nobody had a clue. The know-how was a nigh-on monopoly of the International Monetary Fund. So no matter what the motivations, in the end, the IMF popped up. And if you simply think of how steep the learning curve was for a couple of years, this was good. In the later years, I'm not so sure, but there are arguments pro and con. I think the Greeks wouldn't disagree with me that there were good elements uh, in the IMF involvement, but voila. So coming back to the question, did we foresee what requirements were? Quite frankly, I think most people in Europe thought you could get by with simply identifying what the current account was uh, and it's X. So you say, if it's X, we'll give you X. Tim Geithner would have said, you don't understand the first thing about the sovereign debt crisis. You need to promise a huge amount of money. You will realize that only a fraction will be called, but you need to think big and then you act as required, which is not what happened partly for cognitive reasons, but very largely for political reasons. And that's one of the reasons why I think the setup of the IMF back in the mid-40s was a stroke of genius. Think of an institution which has to go through 190 parliamentary procedures to see if it's okay to give a billion to Sri Lanka. You'd have a total breakdown of the global economy. And therefore, the financing of the fund, largely through central banks, was a stroke of genius, with one or two unfortunate exceptions, which we need not go into now. But that's the way that Europe was constructed, that the ECB was absolutely unable to play a role there, that this was concentrated on the member states, the nowadays 19 member states of the euro area, at that time, fewer of them, and that, therefore, this was a political solution which had to go through, how many were we at the time? 15, I think. 15 parliaments. And parliaments are very susceptible to publicized figures, even if you don't need the whole shop that you're throwing at the Greek economy. And then you have one large economy, Germany, which not only has a federal government, but 16 provincial governments, and whenever there is a vote on the horizon of one of the provincial governments, the whole thing shudders to a stop. People start panicking and saying, oh, my God, if we do anything courageous now, we will be punished by the voters of Nordrhein-Westfalen or Saarland or Bremen or Sachsen or God knows what. With 16 Bundesländer, you've got on average a regional vote every three months that makes is very, very, very difficult. And yet, every package passed the Bundestag with an enormous majority. It was always baffling to me why she worried so much about the Bundestag majorities. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Angela Merkel, I'd like to talk about the Deauville meeting between her and Nicolas Sarkozy. And in another interview with uh, Roman Fernandez, he told me that if the two of them have not, had known the market reaction to their bilateral deal, they wouldn't have done it. To an outsider, that just seems incredible. Was this a common experience that, that politicians just made decisions like this on the hoof without advice either from economic advisors or people who knew markets? For Mrs. Merkel, this was extremely unusual. 
because she, as a rule, consulted a wide array of experts, including for markets. I knew quite a lot of contacts that she had with bankers and other financial market representatives. And she was well advised, for example, by Jörg Asmus and others on these issues. But that also shows that there, especially in Germany, there was this tension between economics and politics. And this is not the place to go into the semantics of Schuld and Schulden, of debt and sin and redemption. But there is a strong division in Europe between the approach of Catholic countries and more Calvinistically oriented countries towards deficits and debt and that you should be wholly responsible for the policies that your country is implementing. And because there was such a deep feeling amongst the more Calvinist countries that all of this was the fault of Greece and Greek policies and politics and of those who had financed Greece, I think that more Calvinistic feeling overrode the economics. So I think that's what happened in Deauville. And normally, if Mrs. Merkel went for a walk with one other person, she was 10 times more informed than the other person. But in this case, I think enthusiasm for politics overrode the information substance on economics. Well, after that, I mean, there was a domino effect after that, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and each of those governments had to be essentially persuaded to accept help. How did you go around persuading them? Ireland and Portugal are in one category, possibly, and Spain in a different category, and Cyprus is a very different category. With Ireland, there was the big discussion, which was largely a discussion between the ECB and the IMF and the US Treasury on whether there should be a bail-in of banks or not. And the argument of the continental Europeans with large exposure to Ireland, aided and abetted by the ECB, was that any bail-in of the banks, one of the main culprits, of course, of the Irish crisis, would lead to enormous domino effects through the balance sheet of German banks and French banks, and thus would lead to a severe financial crisis across the whole continent. The IMF, to a certain extent, and the US Treasury were on the other side of the argument, and ultimately, through means that we shall not go into, the ECB won the argument and there was no bail-in, which means, of course, that Ireland has to pay for those debts for longer than it otherwise would have had to. I must confess that I more bought the ECB argument about the transmission of the crisis to the banking system as an economist as a citizen, I was very much on the side of the others who said, well, if that's how the banks finance themselves, go ahead, pay for it. Now, the Irish banking system has paid for it, but the European banking system has not contributed to a solution of the Irish problem to the extent that it should have had. So that was the main discussion. And if there is one country that very proactively, intelligently, decently dealt with the crisis. It was the Republic of Ireland, it was the Irish government, who more or less had a blueprint of what they should anyway do, 
uh, even before the colleagues from the Commission and the ECB, the ESM and the IMF landed in Dublin. And they implemented the program by and large. And they were extremely transparent, not only towards us, but towards their own population. Very nice and decent people and intelligent. Portugal simply was running out of money. So the Portuguese crisis was different from the Irish crisis. That this was really a relative competitive position because they simply, as soon as they joined monetary union, they lay down in the hammock and said, hey, this is really comfortable living in a monetary union. No more pressure on our exchange rate. Let's go. And let's go. They did. So through a variety of reasons and mechanisms, their competitive position tanked and international capital markets drew their own conclusion and it dried up and dried up and dried up and dried up. They said, no, we can still manage. And there was, we said, give me a break, but give us a call when you can't manage. So we had everything prepared and then the call came and there they were. Spain was quite different. My friend David Vigara and I, we had been discussing way back the buildup of risks in bank balance sheets in Spain. We got it wrong. We were always joking that this was a problem for Swedish and German real estate developers who were making a mess of the coast in Catalonia and other nice Mediterranean spots, but that it would be by and large okay for the Spanish economy. We simply didn't get the financing channels of the Cajas right, and the system imploded, and there you go. But it was very much a banking crisis. It was a very intensive consultation to put it that way, between the then Spanish finance minister and the German finance minister. So I think there was this smooth, the political acceptance of having a bank-only program. It had frills and all sorts of other aspects which were not closely connected to the banking sector, but I think it was important for Spain, for the Spanish government, to be able to portray it as only banks or only a banking sector issue. So there was no coercion on the part of Europe in these cases, barring possibly the decision on whether to bail in the Irish banks or not to bail in. Otherwise, I think we managed to be well prepared for the country problems which had to be solved, but there was no coercion. The approach to Cyprus did feel more like coercion. And were lessons learned from the Irish case there? Or was it very much driven by a perception that the Cypriot banking set, there was a lot of um, dodgy money there? If I remember correctly, there were a couple of elements, of course, nothing in life, hard, very few things in life are monocausal. The first one was, if I remember the figures correctly, Cyprus GDP was 18 billion euro or something like that. And when the first of colleagues went down to Nicosia, after a year of procrastination on the part of the Cyprus government, when they went down there and had a look at the books and how things were developing, delved into the banks, they said, we need a program of around 27 billion euro. And we just looked at them and said, think again, 150% of GDP, unthinkable. This is politically just, it won't fly. So they pared down things and came up with a figure which was still well above 100% of GDP for one macroeconomic adjustment program. So that's one reason why things developed as they did. The second reason was 
that the Cyprus government at the time had made things so much worse by just procrastinating and procrastinating and procrastinating. Third issue was that the banking system had taken a number of highly speculative positions in Greek government bonds where they lost a fortune. And that was not just normal investment behavior because that was well into the Greek crisis and it was pure speculation and they had miscalculated. And do you want to make them good for such highly speculative nonsense? So a lot of that came together in order to produce a program which was much more centered on bailing in the banks or shareholders or depositors or than in other programs. And the peculiar thing was, of course, that a number of the very, very large deposits there, even a year after it had become totally clear what the situation in Cyprus was, were still there. And I was always waiting for them to pull out, and they never pulled out, and they were bailed in. And the explanation was that these huge deposits, which were of Russian origin and Belarusian origin and Ukrainian origin, they acted as collateral for other loans that had been given to those who actually deposited the money there. And you can guess why such a roundabout way of obtaining finance was taken. But they were stuck because they were collateral. So that made the bail-in much more profitable. It led to utter disgust amongst the oligarchs who had parked their money there. It made them partial owners of the Cyprus banking system. And many people had predicted that once you bail in the banking sector, whatever, in any part of the euro area, the whole monetary union will just fall apart and nobody will be willing ever in the future to give one euro of loan to any of the member states. As we know, things turned out fine. Well. Now we come to the Annus Horribilis 2015. I mean, for the first months, it really looked like you and the Greeks were talking past each other. Varoufakis was showboating. Zepras was working his alternative lane with the commission and with the heads of government. And even the two lead Greek negotiators seemed to be at odds or reporting to different masters. When did you start to realize that they wouldn't move without really looking into the abyss? In the beginning, we tried to take Varoufakis at face value, i.e. we listened to him carefully and tried to come up with solutions that partially took care of the concerns of the new Greek government, whilst at the same time retaining the validity of the existing program. In the Euro Working Group, there was the deputy of Varoufakis, who was also a sort of economist. And that was a time when we Every meeting we had, every week or two weeks, we discussed what the progress was, what should be done, what were the stumbling blocks, what did the Greek government really want, not only say what they wanted, was not very fruitful. We spent hours and hours on end meetings that went on until two in the morning, three in the morning. And after one of these meetings, the deputy of Varoufakis came to me and said, why are we discussing all of this nonsense at times of the day when I am more profitably could be eating and drinking or even sleeping, considering that it's now three o'clock in the morning? Why are we discussing this nonsense? You know that in the end, 
we will do nothing and you will give us the money anyway. And that was early, March. And I looked him in the eyes and said, look into my eyes. You're going to go bankrupt. Nobody's going to give you any money if that's how you will continue. And he turned pale, turned on his heels without saying anything else and ran out of the building. And that was the minute when I knew what's the game. So from that point onwards... It's interesting you say game because it, Varoufakis he was a game theorist. He seemed to imply that this was a game theory gambit for him. Absolutely. And he was strengthened in his beliefs by a number of American economists who knew very little about Europe, even though they think that they know very much about Europe, and who were sitting, interestingly enough, in the council building when Varoufakis was holding forth to the Eurogroup ministers. And he sincerely believed that he could do whatever he wanted, that Europe would provide finance no matter what happened in Greece or with the Greeks. And I think he still, right up to the end of his career there, believed that he was right. And it was only very late in this game that Tsipras realized what he was up against and that it was a coin with two sides, money for agreements. And that's when he chucked Varoufakis out and brought Tsakalotos in. And from that point onwards, Euclid Tsakalotos is an intelligent man and a man of, I think he was very much of goodwill trying to find a solution for the benefit of his country. And even better was his deputy, who throughout, I think, if Greece has to be grateful to one person, it was deputy first of Varoufakis and then the good deputy and then of Tsakalotos. From that point onwards, things improved significantly, even though we had to go through the horrors of the summer, but that was not Tsakalotos, that was more uh, the still to me incomprehensible political games around the referendum that Tsipras had initialed. Did you go to that final summit genuinely believing there was a risk that Greece could exit? Or because of what you've just described about the change of tone, on balance, you thought that wouldn't happen? The starting point to the summit was that the Schäuble had produced with his deputy a paper summarizing the demands on Greece, which were extremely far-reaching, to put it politely. And Jeroen Dijsselbloem, the chair of the Eurogroup, and I had come up with draft conclusions for a mutually acceptable program and approach, which were totally different. And for the first two, three hours of the discussion in the Eurogroup, Schäuble didn't say a word. And he let the others discuss. And they were, I think, the only person really trying to partially understand the Greek approach was possibly the French finance minister who was being polite. But the others were so fed up with these games that Tsipras and his party were playing, it was a violent opposition against Jeroen Dijsselbloem and me trying to find common ground. And they just said, just say no to what the Greeks want. 
Then Schäuble spoke up and said, I'm going to be extremely short. This is totally unacceptable. And you've read what my demands are. I'm prepared to go to the German chancellor and tell her there's no solution in sight. Don't come. So we said, okay, we'll have another meeting tomorrow morning. And then we sat together, four or five of us, for many hours and produced something totally different with lots of possibly this and possibly that and bureaucratic language square brackets around quite a number of things, which we presented to ministers then in the morning. And they said, okay, go ahead, show that to the heads of state or government and give it a try. And I thought this is hardly acceptable to the Greeks, maybe acceptable to the vast majority of the Euro area governments, but this Greeks are not going to buy it. And indeed, two or three of us non-ministers in the room at that Euro summit, and the discussions went on for ages and ages and ages and ages and continued outside of my hearing in very small groups for many hours. So I was witness to only part of the discussions. And the most contentious part, of course, was a selling of Greek government-owned entities and putting that into a fund outside of their control. But in the end, we found a solution. But coming back to your question, was I convinced from the beginning of one kind of outturn or the other, putting exposed probabilities on it, I thought it's probably two-thirds will manage to do something, but there is a very non-negligible chance that Greece simply will be chucked out or leave, have to leave. Yeah. So the solution you just described where at the summit where a fund was essentially created and it seemed to take a similar form to the way German reunification was handled. This never really transpired over time. Did people take it seriously even at the time outside the German finance ministry? I guess, I guess. But the main thing, of course, was how does this look in Greece? So Tsipras had to be able to go back and face his parliament and his party and the media being able to explain how this would be handled. And Mrs. Merkel had to go home and face the Bundestag and explain, I know lots of you have severe concerns about how things are being handled in Greece, but I've got an additional security here. Read my lips. Your money is safe. Good job MPs have short memories, isn't it? Nobody, I think, believed that this would transpire to 100%. So it's more of a question who believe that 80% or 70% or 50% or only 20% of what had been agreed there would actually occur. And I believe that for quite some time that sort of 50, 60, 70% would actually happen. But as often in life, I was mistaken. <laughs> now you're no longer in office. Do you think Greece's official debt will ever be fully repaid? I'm quite sure. And... One of the reasons is that it's extremely favorable, especially given today's interest rate environment. This is super. It's got a maturity, which is fabulous. Not even the Pope can dream of such maturities. And so the conditions are very, very, very favorable, and it will be repaid. I am totally sure. And Greece, I mean, of course, they're in a geopolitically uh, very unfavorable position. If you were Irish, you would probably say, I wouldn't want to start here. But being Greece and being somewhere else in the Mediterranean might be a nice thing geopolitically. But other than that, I think given 
the challenges of climate change, given the possibilities of uh, decentralization of where things are produced and where services are provided from. Greece is in a pretty favorable position to have a successful uh, couple of decades ahead of us if they manage to make further progress on having a good governance political system and a even further improvements on their administration and getting rid of sort of local monopolies and non-meritocratic attitudes towards a couple of things, which is an issue which all of us countries face, but Greece especially. So I'm fairly upbeat about Greece, but I don't envy them the position they're in. Well, as a final question, looking back at the whole crisis management, what do you think worked and could be expanded upon and what do you think failed? Well, I believe that our learning curves, Europe's learning curves, will never again be as challenging as they were between 2008 and 2012. We learned a lot in those years, but we should have known better. Second issue, the problems of the design of monetary union have not gone away. They've become smaller with the creation of the supervisory, single supervisory mechanism at the ECB and the single resolution fund. So progress in banking union, but still a long way to go. Third, member states have learned nothing in terms of a huge priority, exclusive priority of national interests over European interests. Simply look at what the attitude of many countries is towards banking consolidation. Look at the attitude of very many member states towards setting up a genuine capital market or even allowing for an ownership of stock exchanges or giving up or merging their puny little stock exchange with something slightly larger. So that would be the third point. The fourth point is we've seen that we're in a period where extraordinary measures are required and they should not come from the central banks. They should come from the fiscal authorities. And we need a stronger central fiscal capacity. We don't need fiscal union in that sense, but having something more permanent than next generation EU would be of the essence. And I see little chances for having that. And fifth, to come back to what we were discussing at the beginning, the present crisis is not a financial crisis. We've got an ecological crisis. We've got a security crisis, migration issues. So we need policies and we need institutions and we need national politicians who are capable of pulling these things together and giving some kind of unified political and financial and policy response. And that is where some things have worked uh, over the course of the COVID crisis, I think it's fair to say, but we're not quite there yet. I think what has become much, much better is the rapid response of how the commission works. I think they've done a, they've done a terrific job and we'll see in the course of, let's say, hopefully rebuilding the Ukraine, how well that is managed. I have my doubts there, but the jury is out. Thomas Wieser, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tim. <laughs>